Tartarus by Marcus Rose. Episode 2, Part 1 Colossus Silence is golden. A common remark among the uninitiated, those that have never truly experienced silence. Most think of silence as being an absence, simply the experience of hearing nothing. In reality, absolute silence feels much more like a presence than an absence. It swims and swirls around the brain, it twists in the guts, it is an ever-present numbness which grows steadily every second. Lewis knew the feeling well. Even after he left the silence and was once more among his friends and family, the feeling remained like a layer of ice clinging to the hull of a ship. He felt as if every conversation he had was conducted through frosted glass muffled by his experiences, and yet he continued to seek the silence out. Numbness, as it turned out, was a highly addictive experience, one which Lewis found himself desiring more and more often. That is why he had kept the job. On a subconscious level, he needed the silence. Lewis breathed in through his nose sharply. Once again, he had been daydreaming. His eyes focused on the computer monitor in front of him, which had timed out and was displaying nothing but the company screensaver, a Takuyo Energy logo bouncing around a black screen. Good morning, Lewis! Lewis jumped, accidentally flinging the pen that he hadn't realised he was holding across the desk and into his mug of coffee. Oh, I'm sorry, Lewis. I didn't mean to scare you. Lewis sighed. Volume to 20%, he grumbled, retrieving the soggy pen and drying it out on the sleeve of his hoodie. There was a moment of silence. Lewis turned in his chair to look at the machine that had addressed him. It looked for all the world like an over-engineered box. Half a metre high, white and roughly cuboid, the little creature tottered around on a small, broad pair of feet that made it waddle like a wind-up toy. On its front was emblazoned the same Takuyo Energy logo that was on Lewis's computer screensaver, along with a square light at the centre, which was blinking yellow. It was standing in the doorway to his office, rocking back and forth on its stubby legs, expectantly. Lewis smirked. Good morning to you too, Kuyo, he replied. The light on the robot's front turned green and it stopped rocking, before swivelling around and waddling back out of the room. Lewis turned back to his computer and nudged the mouse, waking the display. He'd been halfway through logging the results of his morning technical survey. The spreadsheet before him read, Propellers, functional. Drill, functional. Navigation, functional. Oxygen generator, functional. Refinery, functional. Communication, 85% signal. Batteries, 0%. Power, and the corresponding space was blank. Lewis looked down at his desk to find his notepad, on which he had scribbled power reading 76.2 kilowatt hours earlier. He added this to the spreadsheet. He saved the spreadsheet and closed down his PC. 
He yawned, cracking his back against his chair, and stood up. Lewis's job was, usually, pretty easy. In truth, most of the submarine's processes were computer-controlled, and Lewis was only really around to fix things when they broke, which was, of course, virtually never. Takuyo Energy was one of the first companies to take advantage of the Mariana Trench, and one of the most successful. This was in no small part down to their submarines. Lewis had been the engineer aboard three of Takuyo's subs, and had a small part in designing one of them. They had all been state-of-the-art at the time, but Kyozo, the vessel that Lewis was currently manning alone, had been a significant jump in technological complexity. In previous expeditions, at least three submarines would have to accompany each other for the dive into the trench. A mining vessel to harvest the necessary mineral, a larger storage and processing vessel in which the batteries were charged, and a third submarine which would take the batteries to the surface and bring back empty ones. In addition, it was necessary for Takuyo Energy to invest in a large offshore rig and several surface ships to organize the transportation of batteries and communicate with the harvester subs, as they were called, deep in the trench. In this manner, Takuyo Energy was able to almost single-handedly put the global energy crisis on hold for years. Things had advanced since then, though. Incredibly, Kyozo did all of those things alone. Since Kyozo included a mining suite, complete with a huge diamond-edged drill and a refinery, she was considerably larger than any Takuyo sub that had come before her, hence the name, which meant the Colossus. The way in which the batteries were transported to the surface was partially Lewis's idea, and, in his humble opinion, something of a stroke of genius. The batteries transported themselves. Like little submarines, they had propellers, navigational computers, and GPS systems built into them. When Lewis jettisoned his batteries, usually in packs of four at a time, they would rapidly float to the surface before separating and distributing themselves to Dukuyo Energy's various coastal facilities for testing and sale. Upon receiving a charged battery, the facility would send an empty one to replace it, which would rendezvous with three other empty batteries and sink down into the trench, where Lewis would pick them up in Kyoza. This whole process took only a month. There was one more engineering challenge, however. Upsilion 6, the newly discovered and still not fully understood mineral which Takuyo Energy used to charge its batteries, had some profoundly unusual characteristics. For one thing, it was extremely conductive and could cause electrical faults when stored near electrical equipment. As a result, the bay in which Kyozo's batteries were stored was electrically insulated, at great expense and inconvenience. A side effect of Obsidian 6's high conductivity is that it interfered with signaling systems, dramatically decreasing their range. As a result of widespread Obsidian 6 mining in the Mariana Trench, the only area on Earth in which Obsidian 6 can be found, a large number of Obsidian 6 particles had been dispersed all around the water in the trench, turning it into a radio blackout zone. Koyozo could still navigate by carefully monitoring her speed and using highly detailed maps of the trench, but it was impossible for Lewis to make radio contact with anyone on the surface, nor could he send information wirelessly or access the internet. Takuyo's solution to this problem came in two parts. Firstly, 
Each battery pack, which drifted down to Lewis, would have a hard drive attached to it, full of instructions, data and questions for Lewis to address, along with PDF files of all the main news stories from the world above. Along with this, in a small folder marked Personal, were video messages, emails and other correspondence from his family and friends, along with whatever other files he requested, such as ebooks, podcasts and video games. Lewis copied the files to his computer aboard Kyozo, wiped the hard drive, and filled it with digitally generated reports from the ship's computer, his own technical surveys, and any diagnostic information for engineering problems he might be facing. In the personal folder, he put his own video messages and emails, along with his requests for other files. This hard drive would then be attached to the outgoing battery. Takuyo's second solution to the problem of communication was, of course, Kuyo. Specifically designed to be endearingly clumsy and lovably naive, the little AI cuboid was supposed to keep Lewis company aboard Kyozo. This was one of the only parts of the project of which Lewis was completely unaware until the week before launch. He remembered looking at Kuyo for the first time, standing, rocking on his duck-like feet, in front of the team who designed him, and feeling a distinct sense of dread at the prospect of spending years locked in a submarine with an idiotic robot. Luckily, Kuyo's design team had been led by Rupert Gray, Lewis's former boss and best friend, with whom he had been working for 15 years. Rupert had been in correspondence with not only Lewis's parents, but also many of his friends and one or two of his exes while designing Kuyo. He had also, Lewis had only recently learned, been taking detailed notes on his personality without his knowledge while they were working together on Project Kyozo. It is perhaps unsurprising then that it didn't take long before Lewis warmed up to Kuyo. His constant bumping into things, falling over and calling for help until Lewis picked him up and set him back on his feet, used to be annoying, but Lewis gradually came to appreciate that it was designed to help him feel on an even footing with the robot, who, after all, had access to all the submarine's data and did much of the central processing work for the ship's computer. Kuyo also had an electromagnet built into his front so he could hold Lewis's tools for him while he was working, and his mood light, which had been anxiously flashing yellow, doubled as a torch. However, the best part about Kuyo, of which Rupert Gray was especially proud, is that he could receive instructions from the friends and family that Lewis corresponded with via the battery hard drives. Each month, Rupert included an invisible program in the hard drive, which, when extracted into Lewis's computer, would communicate commands to Kuyo based on instructions from Lewis's friends and family. This was how, on Lewis's birthday, Kuyo had been told to march into his room and wake him up with the sound of a party popper before playing a secret MP3 file recorded by his relatives wishing him a happy birthday. While Lewis had appreciated the gesture, he felt that the party popper sound effect could have been less gun-like, especially for 6.30am. Oh, Jesus if he was being honest, Lewis was somewhat perplexed by the amount of time and money that had been spent simply with the goal of maintaining his sanity. He was largely content aboard Kyoto, probably because, even while ashore, he was a social shut-in. Rupert Gray was Lewis's only close friend, and he had had no romantic partner for almost five years now. He didn't mind, that was just how Lewis's brain worked. There was, however, one element of his job which Lewis found extremely stressful. Dealing with other submarines. While Takuyo Energy was certainly the most successful and best equipped Mariana mining firm, it was not the only one. 
when Obsidian 6 was first discovered, the bottom of the Mariana Trench was a free-for-all, teeming with harvester subs from hundreds of institutions, mostly licensed, but some illegal. However, thanks to a high-profile and incredibly expensive legal discussion between the US Fish and Wildlife Service and Takuyo Akari, the extraordinarily wealthy founder and CEO of Takuyo Energy, the company had managed to secure exclusive rights to 40 square kilometers of ocean floor at the deepest point of the trench, where Obsidian 6 is most abundant. While this did deter the legal miners, the rogue harvester subs remained an issue. With this in mind, Kyozo was equipped with scanners that could pick up signals from unauthorized submarines and automatically issue a warning message instructing them to leave Takuyo Energy's territory. The problem, of course, was that the Obsidian 6 interference meant that this only worked at short range, so rogue submarines could still sneak in and steal Takuyo Energy's resources. On top of that, a legal message alone would be unlikely to deter a rogue miner, especially because Lewis had no way of reporting them to the authorities until he unloaded a batch of batteries. Takuyo's solution to this was, in Lewis's mind, ethically questionable. Kyozo had been fitted with a small number of torpedoes, which Lewis had been instructed to use only in defense of his life and as a last resort. Despite Rupert's assertions that Lewis was unlikely to ever have to use the torpedoes and that they were only really there so they could be mentioned in the legal warning as a deterrent, Lewis was deeply uncomfortable with the idea of having weapons aboard Kyozo and considered it an excessive display of force to mention them in the legal warning. Happily though, Lewis didn't have to think about them often. He had only encountered one rogue submarine in his two years aboard Kyozo and it had immediately banked away upon receipt of his legal warning. Lewis ascended the short metal staircase to Kyozo's cockpit and slumped into the large revolving chair. Sensing his weight on the seat, the cockpit booted up, lighting up the submarine's navigational displays, manual controls, which he barely ever used, and displaying some basic information on the glass of the cockpit itself, which was actually a huge, curved, transparent OLED monitor reinforced on the outside with aerospace-grade glass. The glass displayed his current depth, 3,000 meters below sea level, the speed of his descent, 2 meters per second, and the predicted time for him to reach the trench bed, 58 minutes. Beyond the glass was nothing but blackness. Lewis used to turn on the submarine's lights while descending, hoping to catch a glimpse of interesting deep-sea wildlife as Kyozo slipped into the trench, but he had never seen anything alive below a certain depth. 90% of sea life lived less than 200 meters from the ocean's surface. Beyond that, most of what Lewis saw were the corpses of whales, sharks, and other large creatures drifting down, at about the same pace as him, to the depths. Lewis was on day two of his third year-long stint aboard Kyozo, and had apparently reached the area above Challenger Deep, the deepest point in the trench, about half an hour ago when Kyozo had automatically begun her descent. Abruptly, a message began to flash in the center of the cockpit glass. It read, Surface network ping failed, switching to trench mode. All around the submarine, the muffled noises of machinery moving and whirring could be heard, as Kyozo's various subsystems were automatically reconfigured to function without a connection to the surface. Lewis's communication panel lit up, and Kuyo's voice emitted from it. 
The blackout zone is getting taller every year, he informed Lewis. That's 150 meters higher up than last time. Lewis leaned forward and held the talk button down on the panel. Is that something to worry about, Kuya? Not really, the machine replied. I've already downloaded everything we need. He paused. Lewis, the robot said. Yes, Kuyo? I've downloaded some clips from a popular sitcom, Friends, that I don't understand. When you have a minute, could you explain the jokes for me? The audience seem to like them, but they're not funny. That's not a real audience, Kuyo, Lewis said. It's canned laughter, pre-recorded and then edited in afterwards. There was a long silence. So, they're laughing at different jokes? Yes, or they've been told to laugh by a guy holding up a sign. Another long silence. So, these people are laughing at a man with a sign who's not telling them any jokes, and then the show's producers take that recording and edit it into their show? Yep. Why don't they just have a live audience? Because they probably wouldn't laugh. Friends isn't very funny without the laughter track. Then why is it so popular? Because people think it's funny, because of the laughter track. So the fact that their laughter is pre-recorded is a secret. How did you find out? It's not actually a secret. Most of the people watching the show will know that it's pre-recorded. Kuyo fell silent, apparently completely flummoxed by this concept. Before Lewis could try to explain, an alert flashed up on the cockpit window. Unauthorized vessel detected on course for Takuyo territory. Halting descent. Legal warning issued, awaiting response. Every muscle in Lewis's body tensed at once. He stared at the alert, almost hoping that he had imagined it, that if he looked away and then back again, it would fade away. But it remained, pulsing red, slowly on the cockpit window. Lewis waited. Above him, he heard a muffled hissing as Kyozo flooded her ballast tanks with air, reducing her density and bringing a stop to her descent. The last time this had happened, the rogue submarine had sent an acknowledgement back in under a minute and the ship computer had simply tracked its course as it turned and left Takuyo territory. Lewis knew, however, that if no response was issued in five minutes, Kuyozo would automatically arm her torpedoes. Kuyo, where is it? She's behind us, about 800 meters away, not giving off any kind of recognizable company signature, so probably a rogue. And she's descending? Yes, she's heading straight for Challenger D. The robot cut off. Lewis could hear his blood pumping in his ears. Kuyo? She's changed course. I'm turning the ship around so you can see her. To his right, Lewis could hear Kyozo's secondary propellers churning, pushing the submarine anti-clockwise. Lewis toggled Kyozo's lights, which illuminated the spinning, falling snow of organic debris as the huge submarine rotated. Eventually, the propellers stopped and the debris was once again falling vertically. Lewis sat forward on his seat, peering into the darkness beyond the cockpit glass. He pressed the talk button on his communications panel. I don't see anything, he said. 
Then the submarine doesn't have her lights on, Kuyu replied. So she's trying to flee? Lewis asked, leaning further forward on his chair. Well, no. She's actually moving towards us, Lewis. On a collision course. Lewis sat back on his seat, frozen, staring blankly at the cockpit window. Lewis? Lewis sat forward again, adrenaline pushing him into action. What's her distance? Speed? 750 meters and closing, 10 meters per second and accelerating. Resend that warning. Perhaps she's misinterpreted it, and ask her to turn on her lights. Sent. Lewis reached forward and adjusted Kyozo's lights, turning them up to 100%. The beams pierced through several additional meters of ocean, but illuminated nothing. Give me manual control. Granted. The cockpit flashed a green alert, reading manual control mode, and Lewis's chair automatically moved forward giving him easier access to Kyoso's thruster and joystick, which both lit up. Lewis used his index finger to turn a wheel on the thruster and heard more, louder hissing above his head. Kyoso moved upwards sharply, giving Lewis a horrible feeling of heaviness in his gut. He adjusted the wheel again and heard the sound of air being jettisoned from the ballast tanks as Kyoso's ascent came to an abrupt halt. He pressed the talk button again. As she adjusted her course, Wait a minute, I'm monitoring her now. Lewis peered into the darkness beyond the cockpit. Yes, Kuyo said. She's rising with us, still on a collision course. She's fast. We can't outrun her. Lewis swore. What are they thinking? Lewis, she might be a bomb. Lewis's grip on the joystick was turning his hand white and making it shake. Unmanned, like a drone programmed to recognize our unique legal warning. Lewis's eyes darted around in the darkness. He used the joystick to pitch Kyozo forward so that the rogue submarine would be in his full view. He took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes. Distance. 300 meters and closing. Lewis, I need your permission to... Yes, I know. Lewis put his glasses back on and exhaled, closing his eyes. <sighs> Arm the torpedoes. On Lewis's right and left side, he heard various clunks and whirs as the warheads were chambered and primed for explosion. Kuya's voice transmitted over the communicator again. Done. Lock achieved. Awaiting permission to fire. Lewis took a deep breath. Permission granted. Fire. The two torpedoes, lights flashing like airliners, glided like sharks out of their chambers. After a few seconds, the propellers kicked into attack speed and they sped off into the deep. Lewis pulled back on the thruster hard. Kyozo's main propeller wrenched into action, reversing the submarine at top speed, pushing Lewis forward on his seat. After a few seconds, the G-force subsided, and Lewis sat back in his chair. Ten seconds, Kuyo said, matter-of-factly. Lewis peered at the rapidly receding lights on the torpedoes as they surged away from him into the depths. Five, four, 
three, two, one. The explosion was like a volcanic eruption. Almost instantly, a 50-meter radius of seawater was vaporized by the extreme heat and force, turning into a bubble of superheated steam. The shockwave felt like a punch from God, sending Lewis flying backwards out of his chair, which uselessly swiveled around to allow him past, and into the cockpit wall. Lewis did not have enough time to brace himself and landed on his elbow, which gave a sickening snapping noise. Lewis gasped, pain sparking up his arm like lightning, and clutched his forearm. Chiozzo's autopilot kicked in to attempt to stabilize her, but her propellers were not powerful enough to contend with the force of the explosion. Cuyo's voice desperately called to Lewis over the communicator. We're heading for the trench wall. Hold on to something. I can't stop us. I'm so sorry. Lewis reached out with his good arm and seized the leg of the cockpit chair just in time. Cuyozo slammed into the trench wall at unbelievable speed, throwing Lewis into the cockpit wall again, though this time his back took the brunt of the impact and he was slowed by his grip on the cockpit chair. All around him he heard Kyozo creak and groan with the impact, and then the lights went off. Lewis felt the submarine slowly pitching forward. He used his foot to brace himself against the control console and looked through the cockpit glass. The exterior lights had miraculously stayed on and were illuminating the trench wall, which was slowly peeling away to reveal miles and miles of darkness. The submarine slowly stopped pitching and the emergency lighting flickered on. Above him, Lewis heard a sound that filled him with utter terror. The unmistakable noise of water spraying into the ballast tank. It had been punctured. Kyozo would continue to sink into the trench and there was nothing he could do about it. Based on when he had last noticed the depth, Lewis had about an hour before Kiyozo slammed into the trench bed at Challenger Deep. He had an hour to live, an hour to survive.